How are you today, Matt? Doing well. Thanks for having me. No, for sure, for sure, Matt. It's always a pleasure. I know we've been sort of exchanging a few messages, you know, throughout, you know, the past couple of months. So it's finally uh, nice to meet you sort of in person, quote unquote. Yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, Matt. So, so just tell me more about how you got into the sports in- industry in the first place, because I know you're currently, again, the COO of Union Omaha. And well, of course, we're going to touch upon that. But how do you sort of come into this realm of, you know, as we know, soccer here in the U.S.? Uh, sure. So, um, so there's no short version of this, but I'll try and be as concise as possible. <laughs> uh, way back in, um, in 2003, I started as an entry-level sales representative for DC United in Major League Soccer. Um, DC United, obviously one of the flagship teams of MLS. It was a great uh, opportunity uh, and literally got in on the ground floor um, and, uh, and had cold calling experience. Uh, from some of my previous um, positions in lobbying uh, and government relations. Uh, I had only been out of college uh, just about two years, two and a half years at that point. Um, So it was uh, a a real chance to chase my passion. Um, Seven years later, I was still at DC United. Uh, Mm -hmm. Had a a phenomenal opportunity uh, to be with that MLS team during uh, some some real highs, uh, notably in 2004. Uh, which was Freddie Adu's rookie year, uh, as well as uh, the MLS Cup uh, championship for the club that year, um, and some lows too, some, some lean years where the team did not succeed on the field and, and didn't live up to its high standards off the field either in terms of crowds and, and overall community um, uh, impact. So, uh, so, you know, overall, it was, it was a great learning experience and, and prepared me well for the roles that I would take on later. Um, after, uh, after the 2009 season um, in MLS, uh, I, I realized that the opportunity for advancement there just, just simply wasn't there um, and took an agency job uh, nearby in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, but after a couple of years doing that, I, I just realized I, I simply missed soccer too much mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and took the assistant general manager role uh, along with director of sales and marketing for FC Edmonton uh, in what was then the NASL. Um, FC Edmonton has since moved over to the Canadian Premier League, uh, but it was, uh, it was a great opportunity uh, to step into a real leadership role uh, with a fledgling team. Uh, they were only in their second full season uh, and had a, a great year there. We were really ready to settle in Edmonton. Um, but uh, but as as I learned, when your wife's hometown team offers you the general manager job, uh, you get on the plane. And uh, and um, my very young family and I um, decided to move to Des Moines, where I became the general manager of the Des Moines Menace. Uh, just in time, for, it was the end of 2012, so it would be for the start of the 2013 um season. Uh, The Des Moines Menace played in the PDL, uh, which has since been renamed USL League Two, and um, had five phenomenally successful years there, both on and off the field. Some great crowds and fan support, um, making the playoffs uh, four out of the five years, uh, had a great U.S. Open Cup run, 
where we upset Minnesota United FC, wow. uh, who um, I, I believe at the time they were still in the NASL, but had already announced that they were moving to MLS. Uh, and that upset earned Des Moines um, and our, our players, who of course were all college players uh, for the most part, um, the chance to go down to Sporting Kansas City and play uh, SKC at Sporting Park. Wow. Um, so that was uh, an incredible highlight, um, just, just a great opportunity for, uh, for the franchise um, as well as me personally. Uh, but after five years with the Menace, um, at the time, uh, there were no plans to quote-unquote go pro. Uh, and I, I felt strongly that the team needed uh, to be there for the, um, the continued growth of the game in the Des Moines market. Uh, so I looked for other opportunities. And that's what ultimately led me to Omaha. Um, Great opportunity to get in again uh, with, a, with a team that uh, didn't even have a brand yet. Uh, so in the spring of 2019, um, more specifically April of 19, I became the chief operating officer uh, for Union Omaha uh, and led the club through um, the, uh, the process of establishing a brand and establishing a foothold in a community that I, I think anyone who's been there will tell you was as hungry for a pro team to call their own as any community in the, in the country. Um, of course, the following spring, March of 2020, we all know uh, how the landscape changed for virtually everyone and every type of business. Uh, so we adjusted on the fly and, uh, and ultimately had a, uh, a shortened season instead of a 28 game USL League One campaign with six teams making the playoffs we ended up with a 16-game um, schedule uh, that kicked off at the end of July. And, um, and it was a great opportunity to still put into practice uh, what we had been prepping for. <coughs> um, but uh, but it, it by no means was it the, the full experience that we were all hoping for for an inaugural season. Um, with the truncated season, only the top two in the standings. Uh, would end up making the League One final with one hosting two. Uh, and in an incredibly dramatic fashion, we, uh, we scored a 90th minute winner on the last, uh, virtually the last kick of the regular season to uh, clinch that second spot um, in the, uh, and, and therefore travel to Greenville uh, for the USL League One final. Uh, but as I'm sure most of your listeners are aware, uh, we got hit really hard with positive tests uh, in the lead up to the final and ultimately that game was not able to be uh, to be played. So a second place finish is, is still something that I think in um, in retrospect and in the totality of the um, the story of 2020 will be looked at as a great, great success. Um, but uh, but to say that there's unfinished business um, is uh, is not an understatement. Right, no, for sure. And I appreciate you, you know, giving you, you know, sort of your sort of history, if you will, of your career, you know, leading up to Omaha. So why, why wasn't the final postponed? Because again, like a big event, such as one like a final, right, especially in the top league, in the, you know, the USL one, why wasn't the final simply pushed back a little more? It's, it's a good question. Um, two main reasons, one of which is, uh, it's important to remember that teams, you know, were losing money left and right. Uh, 2020. 2020 was not about making money or even breaking even. It was about how much are you going to lose? So the ownership uh, of League One, the League One Board of Governors, had agreed ahead of time that if the season did need to be canceled early, that the championship would ultimately be decided upon by the regular season standings. Uh, 
um, whether it was points per game or, or whatever the case may be at that point. So obviously the regular season had concluded. Uh, the second reason, which is obviously related, is cost. You know, the cost of um, keeping the players uh, in market and housed and fed and, and um, practices uh, would have been significant, to say the least. We, we don't know exactly how much the penny, of course, because we didn't do it. Um, but it's, it's important to remember that there was no guarantee, even by quarantining them uh, for the two weeks uh, necessary, that, and then let's say getting in, for argument's sake, another week of, of practice to, to ultimately play the final, what would have been over three weeks later, at the least, uh, that we would have been able to do it. And at the time, it, it seemed to be a very difficult decision. But in, again, in retrospect, it was um, the obvious one because, again, there were no guarantees. Many events since then, notably just 48 hours later when the USL championship final um, ended up being uh, uh, canceled for the exact same reason, um, you know, with, with Tampa, the host, uh, coming down with a lot of positive uh, uh, tests, results. Um, and, and all of the other soccer and, and sporting events uh, that have been canceled as a result of the virus since um, all served to illustrate that, that at, at that point, there really isn't any other um, responsible choice to make when it comes to everything from TV uh, windows to advertising to fans to the, the players' health and safety timing contracts just just so many things uh all um all together taken uh, taken together meant that it was it was just not realistic to play the game no that makes a lot of sense man when you put it that way like you said in retrospect looking back it was the right decision but in the moment you know you just want to play that final and as mm -hmm. i'm sure you know a lot of fans you know across the states wanted to see as well also yes. did yeah and just kind of going off of what we just talked about as well uh, I'm not sure if you can even talk about this, but is Omaha and a state, you know, where they'll be able to survive this? And even though this was your first year, of course, because, you know, I, you, I've seen another team in the USL championship already sees operations. There's rumors of potentially other teams, you know, following suit. Hopefully not. Right. But are you guys sort of in a state where, you know, you guys will be good to go for next year? Without a doubt. You know, the uh, the ownership group in Omaha is incredibly committed. Um, led by the managing partner, Gary Green, and uh, locally by Dan Houghton, uh, incredibly committed to, um, to the long-term success. Uh, they have, they've been very open about that fact. Um, and uh, this is, I think, in the, in the long-term story, going to be considered a bump in the road. Uh, a very big bump, no, no getting around that. But, um, but, uh, but there's um, no doubt that the ownership has communicated very clearly to everyone involved, uh, staff, players, the community overall, um, that, uh, that they are here for the long term. Yeah. And, and then go, I, you mentioned uh, the community as well, you know, going over, you know, when we were talking about your career. One particular, I'm not sure, obviously you didn't make the decision to go to, you know, to make a team rather in Omaha, Nebraska, but Basically, what I'm trying to say is, you know, I'm from New Jersey, right? So we're heavily populated over here, you know, tri-state area. Whereas, you know, places like, you know, Nebraska, not as populated, but there was a need for soccer there, you said, right? Just tell me more about that and the community there and how you sort of plan on involving that fan base. I know it's particularly hard this year because, again, I'm not sure if you had fans in the stand, but I know over here there wasn't any fans. So just talk to me more about that. Sure, sure. So, uh, yeah, dating back to um, late July, we, so we, we ultimately had our first home game on August 1st. 
Uh, and with all of the county health regulations, we were restricted to a capacity of just over 2,000. So the, um, the restricted capacity allowed us to have uh, what was between 23 and 2,500 fans per game, which was obviously way down from the, um, uh, the capacity of 8,900 and the stated goal of five to 7,000 per game. Um, so take all that into account and it made for a very difficult uh, situation. You know, we, we had done great with season tickets up to mid-March when obviously we stopped selling them um, because at, at that point we didn't know what the, the schedule was ultimately going to look like. Um, I, I can't say enough about the, uh, the fan base and the way they reacted. You know, this is a fan base that has always supported soccer uh, at other levels in the city uh, and in the Omaha Metro, um, Creighton, uh, University and, and more recently University of Nebraska Omaha UNO um, are phenomenal uh, division one men's programs uh, youth soccer is growing and thriving in the um, uh, in the market um, and just just overall it's uh, it's a soccer town and, and anyone who lives there can um, can tell you that but the, the the missing piece of course the crown jewel is the protein um, you know something for everyone to rally around and, uh, and get behind and, and ensure that um, uh, there, there's that one logo, that one commonality that, uh, that makes the most sense. So, um, so you know, in, in, when the story of 2020 is written, I think the fans are, are in that, that very first sentence, you know, about how incredible their, their passion and devotion was and support. And, and for the most part, their understanding uh, as to the limitations of the quote-unquote show that we could put on. Um, you know, obviously, Warner Park uh, was designed for baseball, uh, and we, uh, we did a great job with the conversion. Um, the grounds crew and, and operations staff deserve a tremendous amount of credit for, um, for the way they, uh, they moved everything around and, and ultimately uh, created a, uh, a soccer environment. Um, and any fan that attended one of our games this year will, will uh, I'm sure, tell you the same thing. Um, but, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, not having the ability to have 100% capacity obviously affected things. Um, the, the environment and the, the enthusiasm, the electricity in the park was great for, for every game, um, especially that, that home opener. No one will ever forget that. Um, despite the fact that it was delayed for an hour because of a crazy uh, rain and lightning storm. Um, but, uh, but, but the idea that, um, that we did sell out our restricted capacity for each one of the eight home games, we were able to, regardless of weather challenges and, and obviously the social distancing requirements and, and just the impact of COVID overall, I think are um, uh, big parts to the success story. No, for sure. And talk to me more about sort of the role you play in with Omaha, because obviously, you know, CEO, that's the position, but with, you know, eight, the rather the hats that you, multiple hats that you wear within every organization and club is different, right? So tell me more about what the roles are that you play with Omaha. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, I think that the easiest way to describe my position is to make sure that everyone associated with the club have the tools they need to succeed at their job. Um, and that's both on the business side as, as well as on the, um, the playing side. Uh, so whether it's um, uh, providing leadership to the front office staff, sales, marketing, communi communications and community relations, um, whether it's uh, the coaching staff and scouting and recruiting, uh, equipment management and purchasing, supplies, 
uh, facilities, you name it. If it if it um, if it has our logo on it, I'm ultimately responsible for it. Um, so that's uh, th that's the the brief version. Um, happy to touch on any more uh, any one of those aspects a little bit more if you're interested. But that's that's the overall uh, perspective. Right, and then sort of just yeah. So I actually did want to touch upon like more specifics too in regards to like. Are you at all any involved in anything regarding uh, player development and, and that aspect? So obviously, you have your coaches and stuff like that, but do you also work with them as well and trying to find, you know, a key young talent, for example, and try, you know, get them to Omaha? Absolutely. So, um, so yeah, a big part of League One is player development. You know, half the league are MLS reserve teams. Uh, that that is their clearly their stated goal. They obviously. Um, uh, prioritize developing players for their first teams more so than, than any other aspect of their business, including winning games. Um, and I think you just need to look at the standings uh, over the first two years now of, uh, of League One to, um, to really uh, see that. Um, the, the notable outlier there is North Texas SC, uh, the reserve team of FC Dallas, who um, have obviously won the championship, uh, won the League One final in, in – um, uh, back in 2019, and then this past year finished uh, just behind us in third place uh, in the final standings. So they, they probably do the best job in terms of the combination of player development and on-the-field success. Um, but, but in terms of the model that, that Omaha is putting forth, it's, it's why can't we have our cake and eat it too? Um, why can't we develop young talent and win on the field? and serve our community um, and be the, a great brand for, um, for advertisers and, and, um, and fans to all rally around. Uh, so we, we really did try to have it all uh, and do it all, um, despite the obvious, uh, obvious um, limitations of a COVID-affected uh, year. Um, but when it comes to player development, you know, the, the long-term strategy, of course, is to get more involved uh, in the local youth scene um, and ultimately run camps and clinics and, and academy programming. Uh, we did um, dip our toe in the water back in the fall of 2019 by putting together a, a, a team of, of local youth talent for the USL Academy Cup, um, which was a great opportunity for us to introduce our uh, brand new logo and brand um, to, uh, to fans um, and, and give uh, – it, it was a U16 team, so give some local youth players a, an opportunity of, of really a lifetime uh, down in San, uh, San Antonio for the West Region event. Um, but, uh, but ultimately, we, we know that there's so much more a pro club can do, just not right away. You know, it's, it's one of those Rome wasn't built in a day situations where it, it's going to take time to build trust uh, among the local youth soccer community and really understand how and where and why um, we can best serve in a leadership capacity uh, in conjunction with the state association um, uh, to, um, to help grow the game, uh, because we absolutely know that that's a big part of our mandate. No, for sure. And then I think that the aspect of player development attributes to, you know, success, even within a shortened season, of course, right? I'm sure yeah. you would have had the same success, maybe not, maybe you would have actually won the final, right? Uh, if you had a normal season. Uh, also, I want to talk to you about, too, the USL1 in general, right? Because we're talking a lot about player development. How do you think the league compares to, like, those lower tiers, you know, in Europe, for example, right? Because, for example, 
USL one is right uh, division three here in the US. I think mm -hmm. that compares to, for, for example, to a division three in, in a European country. And do you see it ever reaching the point of those, you know, leagues out there in Europe? Uh, eventually the answer is yes, without a doubt. Um, but it's important to remember those, those uh, divisions and league structures um, supported by promotion and relegation, of course, have been around for decades. Um, uh, whereas, you know, the USL is just now building out this third division model. Uh, this was supposed to be the second season. Um, so so it's, there, there's so many differences, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, you know, the, the compensation for the players is obviously not there in the short term. Um, players are on, relatively speaking, very low wages. Um, uh, the, the franchise model um, uh, basically... Uh, forces teams to look at their businesses um, for revenue generation opportunities in a different way. Um, you know, we, we all hear stories from overseas of clubs, um, you know, who sell a, a young player for millions of dollars, uh, you know, once every 10, 20, 30 years, whatever it is. Uh, and then those, that profit um, ends up funding the club for, for X number of years um, and allows them to absorb losses and other aspects of their business. But in the US, we don't have that history, right? MLS has, has evolved into a league that, um, that while they do have some great sales under their belt, uh, by and large, they're not paying transfer fees uh, either inside the US or from outside the US for their star talent, their, their um, homegrowns. Uh, and th that's one of the big stories around MLS academies and, and just youth soccer overall. So without solidarity payments and, and with the lack of um, an infrastructure here in the U.S. Uh, that supports uh, player development efforts in the way that you see outside the U.S. and Canada, it, it, it forces a different business model. Uh, so things like ticket sales, uh, sponsorship and advertising sales, um, of course, television rights, uh, media rights, all of those things are, are much more important to the conversation relative to profit and loss and the way that businesses are run, these teams are run, than they are in other countries where sometimes, where, where more often than not, those things can be, um, uh, where more often than not, those things can ultimately be, uh, I don't want to say papered over, but just looked at differently. Yeah, and like, so I'm going to ask you this first, but I'm going to like uh, ask you in regards to like, if you're in favor of a promotion relegation, but before that, I think that uh, I'm in favor of promotion relegation because again, you talked about it, like my opinion, you're capped off, right? Because you have your advertising, you have your ticket sales, you know, TV rights, but you can only make so much money with that, right? You can only sell out all the, obviously all the seats that you have available at your stadium. Uh, you only have so many advertising opportunities, TV deals. So I, I really think, again, even from that business model aspect, I think promotion, relegation, and being able to sell your players off for a profit, it's a big thing. I think probably not in the immediate future. In the immediate future, it will happen here. But I, can, I certainly would suggest, you know, to the MLS and to the, to the USL to certainly consider that for, you know, maybe 10 years from now, 20 years from now, whatever it may be. But, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, I, I, um, I'll freely admit uh, that any fan of the game and I certainly consider myself a fan, uh, would be supportive overall of promotion and relegation. You know, there are great stories and incredible drama every year of, of teams avoiding the drop, of teams squeaking in, of, 
of teams um, ultimately, uh, you know, on that last day, that last kick, whatever it is, um, having something to play for. Because I, I've been part of teams where you have to play out some quote-unquote meaningless games at the end of the season, and that's no fun for anyone. That's, that's really tough. So, um, so I, I, I'm certainly in favor from a fan development um, perspective of promotion and relegation. That being said, it's not my money, right? It's the owner's money. And, you know, when you look at the franchise valuations in MLS, for example, how do you rationalize the franchise tag of, a, of an MLS team right now being X hundred millions of dollars? Um, uh, the last number I heard was still was north of 400. Uh, and that's not even with a stadium, you know, relative to the values of a Premier League club, of a recently um, promoted Premier League club in the English Premier League, uh, the most profitable league in the world. And the only answer that makes sense to most people is, is that when you remove the threat of relegation, um, you, you come up with a, a value proposition that ultimately makes um, it a more stable investment for owners. You know, if, if you tell an owner who has a lifetime or close to it of experience owning an NFL team, where not only do you get to play in the NFL if you finish last uh, the following year, but you get the number one draft pick, um, it's, it's a very difficult conversation to explain to them that if they have a lousy year on the field, they'll be playing in a low, at a lower level um, the following season. And, and I understand there are all sorts of creative ways that, that leagues um, have come up with to soften that blow, whether it's um, parachute payments, uh, media rights, um, uh, dividend payments, you know, anything along those lines. But it, it doesn't change the inherent um, value of where you're going to compete at the next year. Um, so, so determining things by sporting merit only in terms of what league you're going to play in the following year, it, it's obviously it's, it's not part of any other sport in the U.S. landscape. Um, and while it is, is at the very heart of, of the game world, of the game of soccer worldwide, I think that as far as MLS is concerned, um, I, I just don't think it's realistic given the owner's investment. They, um, you know, most of them, well, I shouldn't say most, a certain percentage of them have been around since uh, the league's inception in, in 96 and um, an X number have joined since that point. So I, I think that there's an expectation when they got into the league uh, that that promotion and relegation was not going to be part of the conversation, um, at least in a in the way that we all understand it. Um, that being said, there's all all sorts of creative ways to uh, to create drama, whether it's a playoff push, you know, MLS decision day, um, you know, w whatever it may be. But when it comes to where you're going to play the next season, uh, it's it's tough for me to picture that changing anytime soon. No, I no matter how much, no matter how much fans may want it. No, of course, including myself. I'm sure like you, again, from the fans' perspective, right? Because I, I always look at it from a fans' perspective. Of course, the investors have to look at it from a business perspective. Completely understandable. Um, yes. What about, what about uh, being able to sell your players for a profit, right? Do you think that is more feasible than the promotion relegation? It, it definitely is. And, and we're starting to see that. 
you know, over uh, over the you know year and a half existence of of League One, you've you've had some transfers for a profit. Um, you know, nothing massive by any stretch, but just the fact that teams have been able to to um, turn a profit on a player that they signed uh, for free and then sold for uh, a transfer fee is is um, an indicator that it can work uh, and and can happen. Um, so I I would offer that um, you know it's it's. Uh, it, it, it all comes down to valuation, right? So if, if you have a player that, that you uh, say internally that you would part with for 20, 25, 30,000 uh, and you get an offer for five or 10,000, there's nothing forcing you, of course, unless you wrote it into the contract uh, that says that you've got to let that player move on. But on the flip side of that, then you've got a disgruntled player who feels that the opportunity to play at a higher level was ultimately denied to them. Um, so there's a balancing act there for sure. But, but when it comes to the profitability of the club, you know, it's going to be very interesting over the next couple of years to see how teams, and this isn't just unique to league one, of course, this is championship as well. And, and MLS, although MLS has obviously a different structure inherently, um, how many of them reinvest those profits into uh, the the payroll of the team, you know, you hear about that a lot in in Europe and and around the world that um, that their budget was X, they sold a player for Y. Does their budget now increase by Y? Um, and in some cases uh, around the world, or I I don't know if it's a lot, I, I don't have the data there. Um, that is what happens, uh, and in some cases it's not. But in the U.S. traditionally, that's not the case. You know, that, that those profits from selling the player have ultimately um, not been reinvested, have not increased the player budget, uh, and, and therefore there's less incentive to allow a player to move on other than reputation. Because, you know, you never want to get uh, a reputation as a club that blocks every single um, sale of a, of a player who, um, who ultimately, you know, wants to, uh, wants to test themselves at a higher level. No, for sure. And then just going back to uh, promotion and relegation really quick, don't you think that in the long run, though, you could see a potential positive return on investment if it was possible because of the fact that you would create a, sort of a more passionate fan base? Because that's – and talking to people in Europe, right, that live there and they, like, they bleed, you know, they live – they're hungry for, for football all day long, right? That's the main thing, right? They're so passionate about it. They go – they, you know, they buy all the merchandise. They go to the stadium. You know, they go watch all the games. Don't you think that that turns a profit too, and that means something too? If more people are watching, are in tune, are talking about it, don't you think in the long run that could potentially be a good ROI? It, it yes, it could long term, but but remember that's not the culture that we have yet. Um, so I I could see that taking time. I hear you on that. And what's next for Union Omaha in twenty twenty one? Hopefully a full season and a, a trip back to the USL um, uh, League One final. Uh, where this time we get to actually play the game uh, and, of course, win it um, and, and reward uh, the incredible fan base in the Omaha Metro uh, for all of their patience and support and enthusiasm. No, I hear you on that. I'm definitely looking forward to, you know, seeing you guys out for a full season. Uh, definitely very exciting, you know, having a new team in, in the U.S. in the U.S. in, in general and obviously in USL League One. Uh, I have one more question for you, Matt. Uh, it's kind of off topic. I've been asking everyone this. Uh, What's the most embarrassing song you have on your playlist at the moment? Ooh, great question. Um, embarrassing song. 
uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge Jimmy Buffett fan. I, I'm, I, I don't know that I'd be embarrassed to tell <laughs> anyone that Cheeseburger in Paradise is, is, is one of my favorites, but I think some people might think it's embarrassing. I hear you on that. I hear you on that for sure. Well, Matt, thanks for your time, man. I know you're always very busy. Uh, you know, stay safe out there and we don't talk before the new year. Hope you have a great new year and then, you know, hope to touch base with you soon, all right? My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much, right, Matt? Thank you.